Hello, I'm Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Each month, my brother and business partner, David, and I host Work Comp Today, a live YouTube show where we discuss the current news impacting employers, employees, and independent contractors. Each month, we bring on a fellow colleague to discuss those topics and news articles that are going on. This month's guest is Barry Hinden from Los Angeles, California. Barry has more than 40 years experience assisting, representing injured workers and people who are in need of help. Barry brings some real insight to our discussion this month. We think you'll enjoy this month's episode of Work Comp Today. If you like this episode of Work Comp Today and want to hear future episodes, please consider subscribing to our channel. We put these episodes out each month about a week to 10 days after they're live on YouTube. Also, it would really help us out if you would consider giving us a five-star review and rating, and we would sure appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning in to Work Comp Today. All right, I want to welcome everybody to our monthly YouTube live program, Work Comp Today. It seems like every four weeks comes around about every two weeks. It oh, really man. is incredible how quickly it comes back around, but we're so pleased that it's that time for us to get together for David and me and a colleague, usually from different places in the country. Dave, how are you doing today, bud? I'm doing well. Glad to join y'all. Things are good. Well, we're so glad that you have some time and uh, we uh, I always enjoy this hour. And We want to welcome our guest, Barry Hendon from the Los Angeles area. How are you doing today, Barry? Doing great. Thank you. Well, we're, we're glad that you've got some time for us. Barry is a fellow practitioner. He is with the law firm of Hendon and Breslavsky. Sorry if I, I hope I got that. They do the similar work that we do, and being a, a fellow Willig member, we always enjoy their company during this hour. And as you guys who've been watching our show for a couple of years now, this hour is dedicated to the current news impacting employers, employees, and independent contractors. And uh, Dave, we've had a, a heavy dose of two or three subjects the last almost year now, but I'm hoping that that's going to evolve. It seems like it's transitioning a little bit. What has been some of our bigger topics over the last few few months? Well, certainly the pandemic uh, has been a, a, a subject we discuss uh, each month. Uh, gig economy typically uh, rears its head. And then usually we're talking about Amazon. <laughs> I think those are, uh, those are common themes throughout each of these shows it it really it really is and before we dive into this month's uh news making articles barry if you would share with us a little bit about your practice and about yourself and then we'll we'll hop into these articles okay um i've been practicing for 46 years um i founded this firm we have 17 attorneys um probably about 85 to 90 percent of our business is workers compensation and the other 15 percent is um, is uh, personal injury. Um, we, get a, we get a fair amount of employment cases that we refer out on a monthly basis, um, and um, that's that's basically it. We have a, a staff of uh, seventy people in the office. We remained open throughout uh, the, the whole pandemic, um, but just uh, socially distanced. We have a fairly large building where we we can do that. And, um, and we've been very fortunate that our staff, uh, that we've only had, I think, three people uh, that contracted the, the COVID in our office. Well, Barry, what, uh, where throughout or where, what parts of California does your practice predominantly do you find yourself? The greater Los Angeles area, where we do Riverside, we'll do Orange County, we'll do Ventura, basically from, from the desert to the ocean, um, the southern part of California. Wow. Well, it's, it's 
Dave, we, we don't quite have 70 in our practice, but we've, we've had a, a, a little bit of a different experience uh, that I want to touch on for just a minute. Uh, during the pandemic, we, we've talked about this quite a bit, that firms have all different parts of the country, depending on your state's laws and the, the comfortability, if you will, of the individuals in the, the firm. We've had a kind of a hybrid experience. So I want to just, I want you to share what we have done just briefly with, and we'll ask, well, Barry, we'll ask you the same question about how your firm has been able to continue to practice and to serve your clients. Sure. So I, we were kind of built for this. We were ready for it in the sense that we were able to work remotely and our assistants were already doing re remote work. Uh, they had just scheduled days to work at home and uh, we saw no uh, uh, slippage in their productivity. So when the pandemic came and we needed to keep our distance, uh, it just worked out seamlessly for us. Our lawyers continued to come into the office each day and we just shut our doors and kept our distance and kept, kept our clients out of the office and, and kind of shifted to, to virtual Zoom and, and other programs that allowed us to continue to be productive and meet our clients' needs while, while protecting ourselves, protecting our families and clients. And so it, and we've continued a lot of those things uh, even today. Barry, what about your firm? How have you all been able to, I know the California laws and, and the Alabama laws have not been uh, copacetic. They've been quite different, but you've been able to continue uh, continually practice. Have you all done a hybrid approach or just at home or what, what's happened over the last year? Well, last March, a year ago, March, when everything seemed to blow up, um, we, we did have, we furloughed or laid off 23 people in our office. Wow. And, uh, and some, some of it was voluntary on their part, that they just didn't want to come to the office or work. A couple of them were because of age. They, they were concerned about things like this. A couple of them just ready to retire after they had been with us for a long time. We have, we have a, a, a number of our staff that have been with us over 30 years. Um, and um, so it's, it's a big family here. And what we did in the office is, uh, because we have 18,000 square feet here, we were able to um, uh, socially distance, move some desks around. We, we, we got uh, the shields for each one of the intake secretaries um, and the receptionists. And, um, and, you know, just wherever you went, you found uh, all these, um, these solutions to, to uh, sanitize. Mm -hmm. So uh, and we, we, we had a mandatory mask policy. We also um, have a thermometer um, at, at each one of our entrances for our staff and also for, uh, uh, for any uh, potential clients that come in. And, and we also marketed COVID. Um, we, we actually advertised for COVID cases and we got a fair amount of COVID cases. And uh, we've been very successful in, in uh, proving up those cases as, as industrial. Wow, well, that's, that's certainly a contrast to what we've been able to do here. But let's put that on pause for now. And let's hop into these articles. And as, as we have many, many different months in the past, the gig economy is, is one of the articles that kind of leads us off today. And the title is, Gig Work Could Change Under Labor Secretary, Here's How. Now, the article came out a little over a month ago, but it's a continual conversation. And, and Barry, in your state, uh, your, the cases and what's going on in your state have really kind of led the country uh, in this area. But how do you, what do you see happening in California, which may, I guess, pave the way, if you will, uh, nationally? What's going on from that standpoint about gig economy workers? Well, last November, we had a proposition that was placed on the ballot, Proposition 22, and both Uber and Lyft put a substantial amount of dollars in to, to uh, have it passed. And it was, it, it was passed by 58, almost 59% of the voters in California. And what it did is it uh, uh, classified the gig workers, uh, Uber drivers and Lyft and, and um, the DoorDash deliveries, all as independent contractors. A lot of times they called them independent contractors before 
And when we had a potential workers' compensation case, uh, we would file it in, in the, with the Workers' Comp Appeals Board. And even though they were, they were denied, ironically, probably 90% of the cases that we handled, when it came to going to trial, they settled the case. We did not want to make law. And this was prior to uh, the Prop 22 passing. But now that it passed, um, you know, uh, the people have spoken. And, uh, but what now we're seeing is the prices of, of the Uber and Lyft uh, driving have gone up substantially. I, I just had yesterday somebody that, uh, that lives near my house who normally was $27 to go to the airport and it was 85 to $90 to go to the airport. And uh, yesterday we, um, we had a potential client uh, that needed a lift into our office. And um, so we sent a, uh, a lift to pick him up and it came out, it was $17. Where he lives, it would have been normally five to $7 uh, to come into our office. Barry, what do you attribute the increased prices? Well, um, I'm sure part of it is the pandemic because um, the, they both, both uh, that the whole gig economy has taken a hit. Maybe not so much with the DoorDash because because there's more people getting food delivered, uh, you know, and stuff like that. But as far as the Uber and Lyft drivers, and and even the taxi drivers, I mean, uh, we don't see taxis around this office anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've done is we've jumped into it. We've actually bought advertisement. We have uh, ten um, Uber Lyft cars with a picture of our seven partners on, on the side of the, you know, the car. And, um, you know, they're driving all around town. So we basically have, you know, you know, moving billboards. Wow. Sort of interesting. Dave, you've taken Uber or Lyft recently in our part of the country. Have you seen increased in prices as well? Yeah, it was a, it was a slight uptick. No doubt about it. Uh, Barry made a great point earlier, you know, Who's getting the, who's getting that extra money? <clears throat> is it going to the driver? Is it going to the company? I don't know. I suspect the company wouldn't do it if they weren't going to benefit from it. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, well, what what do we think if we got a a sense of what's going on with Secretary Welch Walsh? Excuse me. And and do we think that this is going to evolve into giving more benefits to those who are are driving? who traditionally have, have not had those benefits. We were getting the better benefits for them. Um, now, as independent contractors, they, they don't have those benefits at all. Right. Well, it's, it's I know that, for example, if, if somebody came to our office, Dave, and they drove traditionally, if they've been a Lyft driver and they get hurt on the job, yeah. What happens? How does Alabama treat them in these types of situations? Yeah, the, these gig gig economy uh, workers, you know, people that drive for Uber and DoorDash, they don't have the benefit of workers' compensation insurance. They don't have unemployment compensation insurance. They don't have health insurance provided through their employer. So there's a lot of benefits uh, that the uh, gig economy worker does not have as an independent contractor. And you hope that the uh, Biden administration is going to be more employee, more worker friendly uh, than the Trump administration. You just have to assume with, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Walsh, you know, former union leader is going to be pushing for more benefits uh, for workers. Well, I know that this is going to be, oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I know this is going to be an ongoing a conversation. We'll, we'll check back. I suspect this fall, Dave, we're still going to be talking about this issue. Yeah. We may have to bring Barry back on to talk about this, this one issue. Uh, but let's move on, guys. Let's move to the Texas situation. This is one that's been an ongoing case because we know about what's going on in Minnesota. We're over 900 individuals, I think at either one or two plants, uh, contracted uh, COVID and whether or not they're gonna be able to say that this is uh, falls under work comp for their state remains, but they did get some hope here. Dave, what did you see out of Texas in this one article that we got? Yeah, so 
you know, interestingly, there were, um, was it 900 meat processing workers uh, all filed for work comp and they were all denied. So clearly mm -hmm. there was a rule in place that all COVID claims were going to be denied. Um, what I think what we're looking at here was that in Minnesota, uh, certain uh, workers did have a presumption that if they contracted COVID, that it was going to be work-related, that it was work-related, healthcare workers, frontline workers. Um, but this, going back to Texas, this was a meatpacking worker. And I think we've talked previously about some Colorado meat workers and some Midwest meat workers where there was COVID throughout the, uh, throughout the plant. But here in Texas, one individual's claim was found to be compensable, meaning that he contracted COVID at work. And as, as a result, he was entitled to workers' compensation benefits. So that's a, that's a great sign. And maybe the, maybe uh, the tide is turning in the favor of uh, workers who contracted COVID at work. Barry, what did you glean from this? And how would, how would California treat this? Or have you guys dealt with this with the meatpacking industry and COVID cases? Well, we would pursue it as, as a work-related injury. And, um, and, and in California, the insurance company have um, you know, 90 days to either accept or deny a claim. Routinely, these types of claims will be denied. Now, you, you also, also have to realize that in California, when, when COVID first hit, um, our governor um, you know, executive order put a, put a uh, presumption in for frontline workers, essential workers, that if they contract COVID, it's going to be presumed to be industrial. Okay, it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be for the meatpacking workers, but um, but as a result of that, we were able to build on that, and um, and at least it it opened the door and and opened the eyes of some of the insurance companies that they they, they better start considering this. And what what we're seeing now is we're seeing the the, the, the long haulers, the ones that have gotten COVID that um, are now and, and, and recovered from it, but now six, eight months later, they're still having all kinds of residual problems. Um, so uh, we took a position that if we were going to settle a COVID cases, we would only settle it by a stipulated award with the medical left open. We would not do a compromise and release, which would totally settle the, the claim. Oh. And um, that was our advice to all of our clients. And, and a fair amount of them, we have filed petitions to reopen for new and further disability. Wow. Now, Dave, we have a ton of meatpacking and, and poultry and, and similar industry in Alabama. I know the answer, but I want you to, to tell Barry, how would Alabama treat this type of a case? Yeah. Unlike so many other states, there is no presumption in place in Alabama, no rule, no law, no executive order that says that if you contract uh, COVID at work, that it's presumed to be uh, compensable or a work comp or occupational disease. So even if you're a frontline worker, a healthcare worker, a first responder, there is no presumption uh, that you contracted COVID at work. And uh, so every claim COVID uh, has to be proven uh, very legal and medical causation. Yeah, it's a, we, we are a much tougher situation for, for our folks who get hurt. And guys, before we head into the next article, I want to welcome anybody who's watching this live or may watch us on replay. This is our monthly YouTube live show, Work Comp Today. Dave and I and a colleague today is Barry Hendon out of Los Angeles area. We go through the current articles and news of the month that impact employers, employees, and independent contractors. And as we do each month, we hit the highlights of the articles, and then we do a little comparison between our state laws or policies, procedures uh, with our guests. And that'll be in California. We'll do that toward the end of the show. Guys, I want to transition to our third article, and it says, it's entitled, can I get paid for my pain and suffering in my workers' compensation claim? And Dave, you can just quickly answer that in one word, and then we'll go to Barry because I suspect he's got a better answer than we do. At least I hope he does. <laughs> my one word answer is no. <laughs> and it never will be because we are such a employer-friendly state. We are an at-will employment state. The 
Business Council of Alabama has been a very strong lobbying group for many, many years. Our laws vary in case you don't know, and I hope you're sitting down for this, have not changed since 1987. They were codified in 1992, and that was considered to be the updated version. Our pay rates haven't changed in 30 years. We could go on and on and on, but I don't want it for David or me to end up crying about how bad it is here. But let's ask you, Barry, in California, can you get paid for pain and suffering in a work comp claim? I have the same short answer, no. <laughs> but, but I'll give you a but though. If you have a case where it's a stipulated ward and medical is left open and, um, and you have a situation where, where you can go back for, for new and further disability because the person now has this radiating pain throughout their body or developed fibromyalgia or, or um, all kinds of other things that, that you know, could be as a result of compensable consequence. We can go after that. So yes, they cannot get you know, actual dollars for the pain and suffering, but they may have a disability that was a 16 or 17% disability initially that may wind up now a 40 or 50%. So yes, they will get paid for that, that, that increase in their disability. It's a good point that you just raised. Dave, talk about how a body as a whole injury can evolve from a scheduled member injury if that pain factor becomes so debilitating. That's the one caveat that we do have. And I'm glad you brought that up, Barry. Yeah, sure. So scheduled injuries are injuries for specific body parts like uh, a leg, an arm, an eye, a finger, a toe. Uh, not scheduled are body parts such as the hip, back, and neck, just to name a few. So if you have an injury to your leg, but you develop debilitating pain such as uh, RSD, then that would make the, uh, take the injury out of the schedule and make it a body as a whole. Uh, injuries to uh, an arm, if you have an injury to your arm and then you develop uh, depression or a mental injury, then that would take that injury to the arm outside the schedule and it would become a body as a whole generally meaning it could be worth more to the injured worker. But the, the pain, the, 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 the impact can't just be of average, oh, it hurts today, I can't go outside to get the mail. It has to be so debilitating that you basically don't function. Yeah. And that's, it's a very high standard. It's chronic pain. It's, uh, it's pain that is uh, intense pain um, over a long period of time. So that's, that's something, Barry, that we, we look for in all of our cases because it is body as a whole cases allow for higher compensation overall than just the scheduled uh, member injuries. Now, the schedule you talked about, is that the AMA guides? No, that'd be the Alabama. Well, yes and no. You take that, those guides, the PPI ratings that are in the, the that are given out, and it can be part of the factor, but we have a schedule in Alabama a finger is worth X number of weeks. A hand is worth X number of weeks. And that's how we do our calculations. But it is capped at a certain number of weeks for each of those uh, specific body parts. I mean, there's literally a chart that we have of the human body that we sometimes show our clients. And uh, we could spend the whole, the whole day on, on this alone. Uh, it's been an area of contention for our side of the bar for many, many years to get all of this raised. We're not there uh, right now. And uh, anyway, we, we, we probably ought to pause that topic because that truly <laughs> would take up our whole day on it. But guys, there's, there's some research in this next article that I think even Alabama at some point or another is gonna come around uh, to help out. And it says, legalizing marijuana leads to fewer worker comp claims, a temple a university research finds. Now, Dave, we just had some new law put into place uh, that impacted uh, medical marijuana. What do you think about this article and where do you think we're going in our state? Yeah, so we've got more and more states nationally uh, that have passed uh, the medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Uh, the thing that stood out to me was this, and from this study, 
that following a state's legalization of recreational marijuana, mm -hmm. there's about a 20% reduction in the probability that a person reports having any income from work comp. So in other words, legalizing marijuana can lead to fewer work comp claims in a particular state. Now, Barry, your state's laws are way different than ours and have been for many years in this area. Um, I guess I'm gonna ask it this way of you. What's the impact of either medical marijuana or, or the, the findings of recreational marijuana uh, in an injured worker system after they're, I presume that they're drug tested after injuries? And but now California has legalized both medical and recreational. Um, but um, you know, to to support what David said, uh, we can see that when people are using marijuana uh, to to help uh, offset some of the pain and suffering that they're they're experiencing, um, it can be and probably will be reflected in some of the reports of either agreed medical evaluators or uh, uh, qualified medical evaluators the so-called neutral doctors that are making a determination uh, as to what the person's ultimate disability is. And, and I think that it could have a substantial effect on it. Um, you know, if you walk into a doctor's office and, and uh, all of a sudden this guy's low back problems with the ridiculous pain going into his lower extremities is, has been minimalized as, as far as, um, because instead of him taking Advil and, and uh, Norco and, and, and some of the other drugs that are pretty heavy and, and very addictive, they're, they're taking the, the recreational or medical marijuana and it's, it's helping them. It, so. and, and I think there's lots of studies, including this one that back that up. Now, Dave, unfortunately, one of the areas that Alabama does lead the country in is the per capita abuse of opioids. And we have certain pockets of our state, Barry, that dwarf other areas of the country, sadly, in abuse of illegal narcotics, particularly opioids. And Dave, it, it seems like we're finally, some of the decision makers on this issue are finally recognizing that because just the sheer either loss of life or the sheer volume of costs from a healthcare standpoint that it stresses our state do you think we're gonna come around and, and really do some things that help out our injured workers on this yeah. issue? You know, at one point recently, we had one county in, in Alabama, Barry, that led the world in number of opioid prescriptions per person in the world, about uh, 30 minutes, uh, 45 minutes north of us. Um, obviously, we, we've seen what this opioid epidemic has done um, and so these doctors are going to have to find other ways to treat people's chronic pain. Um, marijuana is certainly one of those alternatives, although not legal uh, in Alabama fully. Um, and I also want a side note. I, I read this week that uh, Los Angeles Laker uh, is it Alex Caruso. Is that does it is Alex Caruso that uh, that he had he, that he was arrested in Texas. So le so legal in Los Angeles, right in California, to have marijuana. Uh, but but was in Texas and was arrested for possession of marijuana. So not that that was in the middle, not that I had to do with uh, work, uh, but just interesting that he was uh, leaving his state that uh, where marijuana was legal and then went to Texas where apparently it's not and was arrested for that. Let's take it one step further though, is that a person that becomes addicted to opioids or even marijuana, um, it can result as a compensable consequence of a, of a work injury and therefore increase the, the disability, the impairment. And so, so it's, it's a double-edged sword where marijuana could also result in a reduction in pain. Um, it also could result in a substantial increase in um, mental problems, um, PTSD, all kinds of other things as a result of, of um, overuse of it. That is, that is interesting. I'm, we're going to come back in a few minutes toward the end of the program about drug screens and the impact on a claim. But I want to pause that for now, guys, and let's move 
to this knuckleheaded Alabama nurse and social media. You know, we have very, we do tons on social media. That's how we do our marketing. That's how we reach potential customer clients, excuse me. We also do a lot of education, whereas we speak in the school systems about the impact, particularly for those who are in that 13 to 17 year old age range of what you put out on social media will always be there no matter if you try to delete it or to get rid of it. And you just wonder, well, they tell you what they're thinking, but you gotta wonder what are they really thinking when an adult Alabama nurse, he decides to get on social media and just tell the whole world everything that he thinks about certain topics that frankly he had no, <laughs> he had no business doing. Dave, pick it up from there and just share just a little bit more about what this guy did and the impact yeah. on his employment. Well, uh, this, this idiot decided to get on TikTok and say a lot of stupid things, spreading misinformation, saying racist, homophobic things, uh, which he's got the right to do. He's got the right to do it. But what, what he's now learned is that there are sometimes consequences for saying these things. And as, and as a result, he lost his job working for uh, an Alabama hospital. So it's just another example of say whatever you want to say, but there are consequences for saying things that, that reflect poorly on your employer. And he lost his job as a result. But Dave, what about free speech? What about doing this on your own time and you're at your own house or you're not yeah. at the employment, you're not wearing the garb or your name tag. It says nothing about where you work. Well, unfortunately, he was wearing uh, <laughs> his name badge at times. His name badge was uh, legible in some of the pictures. And even if it wasn't, again, you're right. He can say whatever he wants to say. He's got the freedom to do that, but he doesn't have freedom of consequence. And that's what happened here. Light of the recent Supreme Court decision, uh, with only one dissenting vote on the cheerleader, who um, you know basically was kicked off the squad and didn't make the squad or whatever it was as a result of, of some of the profanity she used on social media, uh, Supreme Court just came back and said um, that's her free speech, and um, yeah, so we'll have to see what happens as far as uh, you know. These employment situations, whether that's going to be taken up any further. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to see this this case uh, continue up the the ladder uh, in the courts because of what you just said about that recent case. But I'm wondering if there's a difference in the the way that this cheerleader presented her social media versus what this guy did, and I, I don't know. There's so many similarities in the two situations, but many many differences. Uh, I know that, again, with Alabama being an at-will employment state, we don't have a lot of protections for our workers uh, from in these regards. Would California have any more protections for this situation if it went on uh, in your state, Barry? We're an at-will employment state, too. Um, but I think um, it would be very interesting, in light of this decision, whether the employment lawyers would be interested in a wrongful termination case based upon someone's free speech. Mm -hmm. Now, if he was making derogatory remarks about, about um, where he worked, mm -hmm. and um, that might be a different situation, but it, it's just general, you know, just ranting and raving, who knows what would happen. I think when it comes to employment, I think one of his problems is this. He's wearing nurse scrubs in some of the videos and other videos. He's actually recording inside of a hospital room with his badge on, flashes his name, where he worked, and it names the employer. So I think those are, that, 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 those are some problems he has created for himself when it comes to his employment. Um, more, you know, I guess on the, uh, the flip side, if you take away all that, if he's not doing it at work, if you don't know where he works, if you don't know, uh, if he's not wearing his name badge, I, I would, it's interesting how the facts change uh, or how, to, how that would impact the, how that would impact the decision there. 
by removing the employment aspects. Well, we're going to monitor this one because I suspect it may circle back around sometime in the next 60, 90 days if some uh, some uh, work, not work comp, some employment lawyer in our state or nearby may want to pick this one up. But guys, let's move in to our last article. And we've actually dealt with this type of situation uh, in the past. Widow entitled to wage benefits in husband's suicide. And this one comes out of the state of, is it Pennsylvania, I believe? Barry, have you dealt with this type of a case at, in, in California? I found this to be a fascinating article. Well, we do have death benefits and workers' compensation. Um, and and as, as it in, indicates in this article, uh, includes the burial uh, expenses, survivor benefits. Um, we have to establish um, dependency. In California, if we have, if the person's married and the spouse is earning less than $30,000 a year, uh, he or she are classified as total dependents. Okay. Minors are also uh, classified as total dependents. And if you have a minor um, or another child that has some type of disability, uh, it could be a lifetime benefit mm -hmm. for those people. So, um, yeah. Let's, let's presume that for whether it's in Alabama or California, we have the dependency. We have that. What I want to talk about is the, the causal link between his physical injury and the depression, which led to, in theory, his suicide. Dave, if we have this case at home in Alabama, what do we need from an opinion, from an expert's standpoint, to be able to, to show a judge or ultimately convince in a settlement that we've got what we need to be able to prove that there? I think first you're going to have to have a physical injury because in Alabama, there is no such thing as a mental, mental injury. You have to have a physical injury in order for a mental injury to then be compensable or work related. And in order for the mental injury to be related to the physical, the mental injury or the mental injury just has to be a proximate cause of or come from the physical. So if this is in Alabama, as long as the doctor says that mental injury arose uh, or is approximate cause of the physical injury, I think this is a compensable claim uh, and, and death benefits would have to be paid on this type of case in Alabama. Barry, what do you think? Barry in California, can you have a mental mental injury that's compensable or do you have to have physical that accompanies the mental? Well, you can have mental mental too. And we have a California Supreme Court case right on this point. It's called South Coast Framing uh, versus the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. It's a 2015 opinion. And they indicated in there, all that is required is that the employment be one of the contributing causes without the injury uh, would not have occurred. So if this is a death claim, we don't have to show proximate cause. All we have to do is show it contributed to it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually a, 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 a much more liberal uh, interpretation. And I think um, if you have a death as a result of a work-related injury, and we could show that there's a, it's a contributing cause, um, we, we, got a, we got a compensable death claim. Yeah, it, uh, it's a sad situation for the widow and, and the family. And I'm glad that they were able to secure uh, benefits in this situation. Well, guys, that'll conclude our articles for this month. But before we get out of here several minutes from now, I want to take a little bit of comparison because our state's laws on work comp and many other things, of course, are so drastically different between California and, and Alabama. I want to, in the work comp context, I want to just talk a little bit of comparison uh, about how we handle things here, Barry, versus how California would handle them. Dave, I'm gonna let you kick off. We're gonna talk about a situation where somebody gets hurt on the job and they test positive for marijuana. And what impact would a positive test have on an injured worker's claim? Okay, so the, the burden 
of a positive drug test is going to be on the employer to show um, that that positive test that um, was should be a bar to uh, recovery for work comp benefits. And even if there's a positive test, then the uh, injured worker still will receive medical treatment on the injured body parts. They are just, uh, they can deny compensation for the injury, both temporary benefits and uh, permanent disability benefits if there's a positive drug screen, unless the uh, judge finds that the impairment uh, did not uh, or was not the reason for the work accident. Well, David, yeah, I was going to say, what if you have a situation where a fella was changing his shoes, getting out of his work boots into his go-home shoes, if you will, but he was in the designated area where he was supposed to be and could be. But then we had ductwork that fell from the roof, the rafters, and landed on him and created a horrible injury to his neck and his back. But after the test, I mean, after the event, he tests positive for pot. In that situation, he didn't do anything to create the accident and the event. He just happened to be in harm's way. Would you grant benefits in that situation? I, I think benefits be granted because him sitting there in a spot that it's okay to sit in uh, and he wasn't doing anything wrong and he and his and having marijuana in his system didn't create there was no impairment that caused that accident he was just wrong place wrong time um, I think the employer is going to have a hard time proving that that the impairment was the reason that he was injured on the job um, so I think assuming that, yeah even assuming he was impaired you know it could just be that, in the system but not be of a, a certain level that's Barry, right. let's, let's take it out to California how would how would your state treat that kind of a scenario? I think he would be compensated. I, I, I don't see any problem in, in winning that case. It's going to be a medical issue. Mm -hmm. And the doctors are going to have to make that determination. And it's going to be very hard for, for a doctor to make a determination without knowing the exact state of mind and, and, and you know, how much the marijuana would influence the his body and decisions and reactions and all that stuff. But if the guy is just sitting there, you know, pretty much at his desk, change, changing his shoes, and all of a sudden something falls down from the, you know, from the, you know, inside of the building, um, I think that'd be a clear compensable case. I think a much more difficult fact scenario is if you have a guy driving or if you have somebody who's in a vehicle and maybe he's parked and he gets into an accident. I think that's a much tougher tougher type of a case. Driving or if someone falls off of something or if there's a balance issue, yeah, those, those are some, those are the harder cases to prove. That's the, that's the judgment, whether it's an impairment or not situation. But you're right, Barry, they're all fact specific when it comes to this, this issue. Barry, do you guys have what we call case nurses or case nurse managers in cases in California? Yes. Uh, we don't have those in, in, in most of our cases. Uh, it would be, it'd have to be a fairly serious injury for them to get a, a nurse case management. And um, the way a lot of applicants attorneys look at uh, the nurse case manager, especially since they're, they're brought on by, by the insurance company, the defense, is that they're spies. You know, they, they want to go to the doctors. They want to, they want to be in the room with the discussion. Um, they want to be, and, and, and a lot of that is, is, is really, they don't, they don't have the right to be there for that. Barry, there they some of those case nurses are fantastic. I want to preface it, but David, what? Do, how do we deal with these wolves in sheep's clothing? Yeah. Um, so Barry, interestingly, in Alabama, case nurses are are involved in most of our cases, and it's it's because it's a cost containment issue. Sure. Um, we unless. For, I guess for catastrophic injuries, Barry, I will typically allow the case nurse to have communication with my client just because there's so much treatment and, and, and I know most of those case nurses and they're going to do a good job. Um, for the run of the mill, less catastrophic type injury, um, I'm going to 
my clients tell the case nurse that they are not allowed to be in the examination room with the doctor. We can't stop the case nurse from speaking with the doctor, from speaking to the doctor's nurse, but that's our client's private time with the doctor and the case nurse is to wait outside in the hall while our client is being examined by his or her doctor. We've seen a substantial change in the philosophies of the insurance companies on case nurse managers. Um, ever since um, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger established the medical provider networks um, for these MPNs, they call them, um, each insurance company can establish their own medical provider network and they could insist the, uh, and require that the injured worker treat within the own, their own network. So basically they're treating with a, a doctor that is, is sort of defense-minded to begin with and is being paid by the defense. And then we have what they call utilization review. When their own doctors um, do what they call a request for authorization, uh, every 45 days there has to be some type of whether PR2 or progress report. And with a combined in the progress report is a request for authorization if the doctor wants to send them to another doctor or to um, request additional uh, you know, uh, treatment, whether it be medication or physical therapy. And the insurance company then in-house has a UR department and there's a doctor that works for them in their house that basically has five to 14 days to either accept or deny or modify uh, what the, their own doctor is, is, is coming up with. And in 2016, California legislature passed a bill, assembly bill, because they apparently discovered that some of these doctors that are working in-house for the insurance company were getting paid commissions by their own insurance company for the amount of money that they were saving the insurance company by denying utilization review requests, yeah. you know, requests for authorizations. And, um, and virtually our insurance commissioner did virtually nothing. I actually had a meeting with, uh, with somebody who was running for attorney general in California that ultimately became attorney general in California on this issue. He came into my office and we spoke for, for 45 minutes and he said, uh, this was really, and I showed him the assembly bill. I said, why would the assembly pass this unless they had information and evidence that this was going on, that basically there was kickbacks going on. And um, he said, send me a letter, um, put all the points in there and, and I will I'll give it to our attorneys to investigate this. Never heard back, never heard back from them again. Yeah, it's, it's like in Alabama, sometimes the, the work comp world that we live in doesn't rise to the level of importance to those who are making the ultimate decisions on our our laws. And guys, we've got one more quick topic of a comparison before we get out of here for the month. Lifetime medical care. Barry, do you have that in your work comp cases in the settlements or resolutions to cases? Depends what you're, how you're defining lifetime medical care. If it's as a result of the injury and uh, to cure or relieve the effects of the injury, the answer is yes. But if it's other body parts that were not involved in the injury and were not considered compensable consequences of the injury, uh, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Dave, that's one of the things that I'm glad we still have as a right in most settlements and or trials is that we can get lifetime medical care, Barry, again, for those injuries that are impacted from the accident or the exposure, whatever it may be. Not for all body parts, but just for what's impacted in the claim. Well, that we have, we, we have that too. Any, as long as there are compensable consequences of that. Um, and, you know, we're seeing in psych now um, a lot of uh, the issues of PTSD. And um, because a person is, is not fully recovered and now is having all kinds of other problems as a result of it, psychological, medical, mental, all kinds of other problems. So, uh, and now, as we've talked about before, the long haulers with the COVID cases, mm -hmm. you know, if, if that becomes work-related, um, there's potential exposure. I did a seminar, I did a seminar a number of years ago, and, and actually I've, I've done it, we've done it um, uh, for, for California Applicants Attorneys Association and also for 
Mr. Willig. And, and the issue, the issue was, um, it's called Sleeping Giants. Oh, and I just pulled it out and I actually have it here. It's identifying those sleeping giants. So what is a sleeping giant? Is it how many, how many of us have stipulated awards sitting in our garage in a file cabinet that we haven't addressed in maybe five, six, 10 years because the case is over, but it may be open for future medical care. And I had a situation, one of the ones that I brought up, I had a 15% stipulated award, okay? Um, and um, I went back and, and uh, spoke to this client. I would, we, in our office, I would say probably once every six months to a year when a case is open for future medical care, we'll send a letter. First of all, it's good PR for your clients, uh, for the firm, and uh, it's great a marketing tool and uh, letting the clients know, um, are you treating? Uh, they're not treating within the workers' compensation system anymore. In many cases, they, they, their spouse may have medical coverage and they're, they're going to the doctor on that, or, or they have a subsequent employment and, and they have medical coverage there and they're going to doctors for that. You know, on, on, and this, this case that I had this you know, 15, 16% stipulated award, um, which was probably what, $12,000, $14,000 at the time, um, we settled uh, five years later for $615,000. Wow. And, and I said, don't forget these sleeping giants. Look at to revisit all these cases that you've, that you've settled years ago where the stipend, you're not reopening them. It just if they have, if they, they still have medical care and they need it, you bring it to the insurance company's attention and when we start notifying people like Blue Shield, the Blue Cross, or or Kaiser, uh, that's treating them now, that you know, hey, this is uh, this is there's a work-related injury with medical left open. Um, this is the name of the insurance company. Here's the last uh, adjuster that was on this case. Um, here's the claim number. Um, it's amazing how they'll send letters to the insurance company saying, hey, you know, we've been treating this person for the last four years, and you guys haven't paid us for it. And we want to be reimbursed. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how many of those insurance companies on the original comp case are coming back to us and saying, let's close this. What do we need to close um, this case? Barry, that's the biggest fight we have in our cases in Alabama. It's over medical care. It absolutely is. Sure. Barry, thank you so much for spending this almost hour with us on our monthly work comp today. We really enjoyed your insight and, and experiences that you shared with us. I'd, I'd love to send you this article if you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, I got a couple that I'll, I'll forward to you. Thank you. And guys, we want to thank everybody who's tuned in with us live or that may watch us on the replay. As Dave and I and a guest each month do, usually the third or fourth Thursday of each month, we get together for Work Comp Today. Dave, what's the new name that we're, we're still thinking about changing it to? We're comp nerds. <laughs> That's what we do best. But guys, we talk about current newsworthy information that we find each month that impact employers, employees, and independent contractors. We again, we want to thank our guest, Barry Hendon out of the Los Angeles area, a fellow Willig member. And we will see you guys again in about three or four weeks. We hope you're safe and continuing to have a good summer. You guys take care.